Welcome to episode 115 of the Fertility Podcast, coming to you on the 1st of January 2018. Woohoo, happy new year. Happy new year, unless you're listening to this in the future. So I hope you've had an enjoyable festive time. Hopefully it wasn't overshadowed with where you're at uh, on your journey. If it was, well look, give yourself a bit of time out to just think about the new year and what's going to happen what you're going to make happen give yourself some things to look forward to is the best piece of advice i can give you and before i tell you about my guest for the start of this new year who i'm really excited about i do need your help with two things okay first up i need you to go to itunes and subscribe to this podcast then what I need you to do is leave me a review because in order to keep this podcast sustainable, I need your support. The market's changed and in order to continue to get the best guests possible, this podcast has to be prominent and I need reviews as often as possible in iTunes and I don't really like asking but it really makes a difference as the podcast kind of space gets busier and busier. You want things like this to stand out. So I'll put the links in the show notes and let's get on with my guest who is somebody who I've been keen to get on the podcast since the start really because he's been on my radar since I went through treatment and as 2018 is the 40th anniversary of I IVF, I thought he was a really good person to start with. So I'm now going to welcome Simon Fishel to the podcast, chairman and founder and president and head of R&D at Care Fertility. That's quite a lengthy title. I don't know if I've quite said that correctly, but Simon, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. And I've been keen to speak to Simon probably since I started this podcast because um, Simon and I are both from the same part of the UK, Nottingham, where Simon's clinic's started is that right that's right it was the first care yes when I moved out of Cambridge I came first to Nottingham instead of New York I was planning to go to New York and set up the first IVF clinic in New York in the center of Manhattan but chose Nottingham instead you picked the wrong end <laughs> well, I picked the right one probably yeah <laughs> I, picked, okay. I picked the wrong one if I uh, wanted to be well retired by now and sitting cozy somewhere but I'd never have done that but no no I'm, I'm I'm very glad I stayed in England you say that I mean care has 15 sites some of which I know are satellite clinics but 20 years of care yes it's been an amazing journey something that I never expected never planned for when I moved out of the university to set up my own group. It was really just to, I suppose we thought idle away the years doing the very best we can in a, in a single facility, the Park Hospital in Nottingham at the time. And uh, that's what I thought we were going to do. Never expected to, to grow as big as it did. Although having said that, one of the reasons why I did want to develop a group was specifically to do things that I hadn't been able to do for the previous 20 years. All the um, R&D, the research that I believe was required. And to do that, you need scale. And one of the great things now about care is it does have scale. So we can start to do things and we can start to change things that, um, and we have done over the years that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were small. Well, to give people, especially outside the UK, an idea, and I don't know if this stat is, is up to date, but I've got that a care baby is delivered every four hours. Well, that's, that's, that's what they tell us. <laughs> Which is pretty yes. remarkable. It is. It is. It's, um, and, and at the moment, we currently have the two top 
most successful units in the country that are on the HFEA, that's the regulator's own metric, are two care facilities. And the rest are in or around the top 10. So very happy in what we're doing at the moment. Well, you mentioned that you came to Nottingham after Cambridge. And for people outside of of the UK who may not know the kind of history of, of, of IVF in the UK, Cambridge was the home of the first test tube baby, Bournehall, actually where, I don't know if I've ever told you this, that's actually where we had our treatment um, ah, interestingly enough. Know. Right, right, okay. And one of the things that I know that you were involved with was demonstrating that embryos are capable of responding to their environments. And I, I'm keen for you to explain what that means as far as them communicating with the uterus and external factors. What, what does that tell us? Well, actually, it's very interesting because it, it, it's now re-emerging again as something extraordinarily important. Um, I'll go back to my my bit in a minute but just for for modern day IVF um, you know we're beginning to realize that we spent well nigh on 40 years trying to understand the embryo but we do know that the lining of the womb plays an important role as well but my very early work in the 70s was um, it, it used to be phrased something called the maternal recognition of pregnancy and that is is there any communication between the lining of the womb and mother and this embryo which is an independent entity really in allowing implantation successfully to occur or is the lining of the womb just simply permissive the embryo's got its own energy its own drive and 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 developmental power to, to 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 implant and grow or is it somehow constricted and communicated with by by the lining of the womb now some of my work was on that, and it was particularly looking at the way the embryo could respond to the environment. We could actually make the embryo sit and mark time, if you like. We called a fancy word. We had it, it was quiescence. And, and, and then when you gave it another trigger, it would implant. And we tried to understand what was actually going on in the embryo that could make it just slow down, mark time, wait till the lining of the womb was ready, and then bang, implant. And that was early research work in animals, and then, of course, uh, when well, I was working with Edwards for that for about five years in, in the, from about 1975. And then Louise Brown was born and that just changed my life. I bet. This is a little bit probably not able to be proved, but I'm interested in just your view because I have lots of chats in social media groups with people going through treatments. And there's the big pineapple debate about uh, implantation whilst, you know, you're waiting that two week wait, the, the consumption of pineapple. <laughs> uh, well, uh, no. Okay. I, I, I would say in terms of any particular single entity, be it pineapple or anything else that's out there, and there are loads of them, yeah. no, probably nothing you could do to uh, really change the way things are happening. And most of it is inherent within the embryo, as we know it as a fact these days. Uh, we don't know everything, but we think most of it is inherent within the embryo. In fact, probably from the egg. The, that's the real, uh, I would say, 90% of whether it's going to work or not is from the egg. And then the rest of it is partly from the embryo and partly from the lining of the womb. So where does that mean endometrial scratch sits in your mind? I, I think the jury is still out, but there is so much um, anecdotal and now some research evidence to suggest that what is really important and what the endometrial scratch is doing is the woman's lining of the womb does need to be regenerated to give it a, 
if you like, a, a really fertile opportunity. But what does that mean in terms of the science? We're not quite sure. We know that, for example, if you, if you, in, in some dogs, for example, when you're trying to, uh, to, to mate them for the, for the first time, a particular breed, it doesn't work and they miscarry. Believe it or not, some breeds do have a high miscarriage. But the second time around, they do implant. And it's part of it might be an immune problem. Um, we know that an embryo uh, does actually have the um, markers, we call them the antigens of the man, and that really should be what's considered a foreign body. Like in any form of transplant process, rejection occurs. Why isn't the embryo rejected? So somehow it's protected in the uterine environment. We think partly the endometrial scratch and the, re, the, the, the lining of the womb when it's already been exposed to those kind of markers is helpful. And also just the regeneration of tissue is helpful. But as I say, there's some proof there. It, it may well be pretty important um, for some patients only. And that's always the issue. That's mm. always the real problem is who are these things important for because everybody's different but there's something there and, and and i think at some stage a lot more focus is now happening on the endometrium it's been quiet for a while the endometrium the focus on it it's happening again and we'll know more within the next five years i'm sure okay so whilst we're talking about individual cases and i'm always really aware of the people that listen to this podcast being at so many different stages i know that one area that you you talked about the r&d that you do there's, there's, there's so many we're talking at the beginning of 2018 but last year in 2017 that you were discussing was about vitamin b3 and the implications of it preventing miscarriage or you commenting on research that had been done and i'm interested in your your views on that because i think am i right in saying that you were saying that it's not that straightforward that it's something that is going to help yes it it, it isn't it, again it isn't straightforward and and of course one of the problems in all these sup supplementations and i'm a great supporter of them actually is understanding whether there is a deficiency or not and whether there's what we might call a uh, the type of deficiency a subclinical deficiency in that somebody may feel particularly healthy there might be nothing wrong with them nobody can really find much wrong with them but are they deficient in a uh, a substance like a vitamin that may actually be causing problems which are not easy to detect in the way well for example in this case an embryo starts to implant and develop and it's finding those patients we call it strati stratifying finding groups of patients that are actually um, where the benefit will be gained by doing something so for example we we now have and this is research that actually came out of fertility um, in the IVF world but we know of it in, um, in, um, from, from research that started out actually the University of Munster in Germany, that there is a marker for miscarriage now. And not only is it a marker for um, miscarriage, it may be a marker for early pregnancy loss and also for complications of pregnancy. We call it C4M2. That's our name for it. But it's no point in trying to treat everybody. Um, the treatment for it, for example, is, is heparin. No point of trying to give that to everybody because you will only see a benefit if you stratify your patients into those who need it. Now, we have a genetic test now that says, right, these patients have this tiny mutation on this particular gene, and it's the C4M2 mutation, and they need to be given heparin to help them keep that pregnancy. 
And it's only those patients that will benefit. And it's the same with vitamin three or anything else. It's it's trying to find. That's why you'll often find studies where we did, a, not us, but somebody claims he did a study and somebody else comes out and says, actually, we found different results. It doesn't work or, or, or whatever. And I think it, part of part of this is being able to stratify. And that's why personalized medicine going forward in the coming decade is going to be so important. So as far as the, the gene mutation, as you've just described, and people listening having had failed cycles and the kind of conversations that they can be asking, because the most common reason why IVF fails is is abnormalities. It's chromosomal. Chromosomal abnormalities, I can't even say it. Do, do you think that that is conveyed enough? To, because obviously when you're going through the treatment and it fails and you're so caught up in the overwhelm of it all and it not being the outcome that you want, do you think that patients are stepping back enough to understand that this is something that really needs to be looked at and, and really try to help at the earliest stage possible? Right, so there's a lot in that question. Mm. Um, so, so, so the first thing is, let, let me just deal with this. What, 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 should we, what should we look at at the very first stage? Mm. This is a hugely difficult issue. If finance, and I used to always say this to my patients, if finance was never a factor, I'd do A and B, maybe C. But the problem here is that IVF has two massive barriers. The first is that reproduction itself is not all that efficient. In fact, IVF now is much more efficient than natural reproduction, fortunately. But it does mean that even in the best opportunities, you're going to get failure possibly as much as as success. Even in a 50% success rate, you're going to potentially get 50% failure. That's one big barrier. The second big barrier is cost. So there's a lot of science out there that says we can test for this, we can test for that, and, and there's lots of things we can do up front. But is it indicated? Now, what a patient doesn't want to hear is after two failed attempts, say, the doctors then say, well, let's try something else. And then you try something like, oh, yes, you do have that uh, chromosomal problem or you, you do have this, this other issue. The question then is, why wasn't it tested up front? Yeah. And the answer might be, because it's so damn expensive, it really is only applicable to those patients who we feel there's a need for. And it's not really necessary for all patients, only maybe 15%. But if you're one of the 15%, you may wish it was tested up front. Now, that's where the big rub is. Mm. If you went in for IVF like you went in for almost any other medical procedure that wasn't particularly life-threatening like cancer maybe, and you were guaranteed an outcome that was successful, you had to hit replacement, you know, it was almost guaranteed it's going to be successful, then I think perhaps cost in IVF will be less of an issue. But when we know that it's not guaranteed to have a successful outcome, and we know there's a raft of testing we can do that's going to be expensive who do you advise and how do you advise them to have these upfront tests so it, it really is trying to get a, a handle on what's best for the for the individual couple my approach to this by the way is to make sure we inform and we inform as simply as we can and as as, as, as educationally as we can but patients have to make up their their own mind there are some doctors that actually would rather not inform and just take the view as to what's good for the patient. And that's where it gets very difficult. But yes, there's lots of issues there about chromosomes. There's lots of issues about this miscarriage test, which, by the way, is the very first um, test of its kind to have proven that the man 
can cause a miscarriage in the woman, by the way, because this particular marker is equally present in men and women. And if it carries from the man into the embryo, the woman's just as likely to have a miscarriage as if she was carrying it herself. So it is the first time a man can cause a, a miscarriage in a woman that we know of if that marker is present in men. But that's just by the by. And is is that something that could be shown in a sperm DNA test? Or is it not that straightforward? Uh, no, it's a very simple test. It's it's on the blood. You just take a little bit of blood from the man and you can tell whether he's, he's carrying the marker or not. Because I, I, I've got a bit of an issue with what happens with, with men at the start. Um, and a lot of the men, because I do try to speak to men on this podcast, do feel that they're often overlooked and it's just that straightforward semen analysis. And I know that, again, it's a cost issue and what have you, but could that blood test at the early at the start be a, a cost-effective way to add it into the, the, you know, the semen analysis? OK, so it has nothing to do with semen analysis, this blood test. But, but I see what you're saying. You're saying, should we just test anyway because it's a potential thing for the man? So if you're going to test for this marker... You test both couples, always test both couples right. if you can, sure. um, because it can be in, in either. The problem with, well, first of all, uh, in the moment, it's really only available in the curve fertility group because we've done the research on it in, 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 in that group of patients. But, but even still in our group, you might get a, a different view of, of, of those who consult the patient saying, um, well, there is this test, you can, you can have it if you want, or they might not even raise it because miscarriage has never been on the agenda before. A couple have never had a pregnancy. Sure. And, and so this is where it gets very difficult because that's not the only, there's lots of other things. You, the, the, so for example, the largest single cause of miscarriage period, whether it's after IVF or natural conception, is chromosomal anomalies in the embryo, most of which come from the egg. Now in that situation, we should say, well, why don't we try to select all embryos and select out the chromosomal anomaly? It's cost. Mm. It's purely cost. And if we know, for example, that about maybe 60, 70% of embryos never make babies and about 50, well, anywhere from 30% in a woman in her late 20s to about... 90% in a woman who's 44 of the eggs would be chromosomally abnormal. It massively increases with female age. So that's why we spend a lot of time developing the chromosome testing program. But the trouble is, it's cost. Well, I want to talk to you about how you feel the world of IVF is. We're talking at the beginning of January 2018, where this year is the 40th anniversary I know I've seen on, on Twitter you commenting on CCG's cutting funding. If you're outside the UK, you'll probably be aware that we we get a, there is this postcode loss. We have talked about it in the podcast before about certain areas in the UK offer funded treatment for fertility treatments. And I'll put details in the show notes rather than trying to explain it all in a nutshell. But Simon, I'm, I'm keen to get your view looking forward um, for the next let's say the next five, 10 years, knowing what we know with the cuts, do you feel that IVF is in a good place? Not if you're a patient and you're wanting NHS provision, no. I have a number of problems with it. I have a great sadness that in the country that um, created IVF, made it, made, it, made it available for the rest of the world, we still can't have a single unified policy. I'm, I'm not suggesting for one minute 
that everybody should get funded for as many IVF cycles as, as they wish, or, or the Israeli approach where you can have as many IVF attempts to have two children, um, and the many other countries around the world who are much more generous than the UK. But it does seem absolutely insane. It seems iniquitous. It seems utterly unfair to have a system where, dependent upon where you live, that the rules change. We need to have a, a, a national consistent policy. And then we can start to argue whether we're spending enough on IVF or not. There will always be those people, as we know, the detractors who feel that infertility isn't a serious issue. And those of us who understand it very well would take great exception to that. But unless it is at least consistent, then you know, how, can we, how can we debate it maturely and sensibly? Even if they said, right, consistently, uh, the NHS isn't funding IVF. Uh, at least that's a consistent approach. We would all be very unhappy about that, but it's there. At the moment, not only do you have, well, uh, a friend of yours may get it who lives five miles away, but you can't have, have it at all. Your, your friend may have two attempts on the National Health Service. The question then is, what are the criteria for those attempts? And they will change too. So you might have people around the country, and we do 20-something, 20 24% of our work is NHS work. But the actual criteria from the different um, commissioning policies that we have is huge. And again, I think that is wrong. You know, we just need to have a UK-wide consistent policy. And then we should debate whether there's enough money and how how we spend NHS money and, 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 and what's the most efficient way of doing it. The other problem is when you're getting you know, IVF units somewhere near the, you know, the poorest success rates in the country and NHS funding's been pumped into that. Why? That's not right in my view. So from where I sit, key people in the industry like yourselves have such strong views on this. And I know from listeners who are lobbying MPs and there's discussions in Parliament, I mean, do we see anything being listened to? Do we see any progress? No, we, we, we don't. And, and even I went to Department of Health uh, a couple of years ago and I spoke to the top guys there who issue directives to uh, commissioners. And I said, look, one of the problems I have got, let's forget just the NHS policy on IVF, is that some of our patients uh, need to have a particular technology that you don't fund. Let's say chromosome screening, because we've been talking about that. Mm. But they'd wish to to buy that themselves. They said to me, there's absolutely no reason why, and they call it a top-up. A patient cannot top-up their IVF program. There's no directive that they, they shouldn't be allowed to do this. And yet, except for one NHS commissioned project in the country, all the others will not allow patients to buy any top-up they want if they feel it's going to be best for their situation. And why is that? It's some sort of ingrained philosophy that's not even there in the Department of Health diktat. So it seems to me that we're just in complete disarray regarding the provision of an equal IVF policy for the UK. And everything that we do to lobby and to fight this doesn't seem to make much progress. It, it goes up two steps and back two or three steps. And it just... We, we remember John Reid, when he was health secretary, said everybody in the country is now going to get three attempts of IVF 
on the NHS. Did it ever happen? No. Well, we could debate this, I think, in, in much greater detail. I'm interested what you feel about people's perception of treatment. And I mean that in two different ways. One from the patients that are coming to you, do you feel they are more informed? Because in the three and a half years I've been making this podcast, I feel that when I started, I was constantly saying infertility is a taboo word and we never talk about it. Whereas now I feel that there's much more conversation. I see all sorts of different um, profile people from celebrities or presenters sharing their journeys. And I feel that the awareness is is much greater and we are talking about this more freely. Do you feel that from the patients coming to you, that they're more informed? Absolutely. But we could never generalise. But if we just talk on average, they are absolutely more informed. The problem is they're informed by Dr. Google, which is sometimes not such a great thing sure. because there's so much out there. Um, but if you go back, and it depends what we're comparing it to, certainly if you go back 15 years, well, it's an utterly different world. If you go back five years, well, I would say there's been a, um, a huge, huge amount of uh, more acceptance by men, by um, celebrities, by lots of people who are prepared to talk about um, the infertility issue, that people are informed at a level, mm. um, but they're aware. And even the whole IVF context is fascinating to me, Who, and I've been in it since the very beginning, and something like t- uh, 2% of European babies are now IVF babies. There's almost not a classroom in the country where there isn't an IVF baby. So it is very widespread now. It is much more normalized than it ever was before. Mm. But there are pockets. There are still pockets, of course, of uh, communities and individuals who uh, not only are they not particularly well informed themselves, they, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to let anybody know that they've been through it. And I can understand that the only rider I would have or caveat to, to those comments Oh, if you actually do a survey of young people about whether they understand the issues of fertility and particularly the biological clock, uh, I'll say of women, and I'll come on to men in a second, then then they're utterly ignorant of it uh, by and large. And that's very important. So education early on is very important. The reason I said women and not men, because actually even adults generally only appreciate that women have a biological clock. They don't really understand that men have a a really important biological clock too. Most people don't understand that. And and, and that's something I want, I, I want to get out wider to the wider world because I think it's two things are so important that are forgotten when we just talk about infertility. One is secondary infertility and the other is the male biological clock. So there's a mass amount of education that needs needs to go on here. And we should start with the young. It's something that I'm really passionate about and want to do more of. And I just recently spoke with Jane Stewart, who I know you, you will know, who, who gave me a fascinating stat about how if you want a 75% certainty of having three children in your family, you need to start trying at 23. And I was just baffled by, and we were talking about family planning, and I was saying how from my point of view, and I was with a group of girlfriends this weekend, talking about this very thing, saying that we thought of family planning as the place you went to get the pill or condoms not plan your family and there's such a, a, a misunderstanding of it and, and it's something that I hope that I can you know be more involved with 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 the content that I'm making with with the podcast because I agree with you that I don't think it's understood at all well this is why I get so upset and get so angry at misinformation that's deliberately done by some clinics uh, and I think it's, it's it's partly those that are uh, promulgating some other approaches to IVF. It's partly those who 
don't have great success rates themselves, is they only want to present the chances of success as what's called a cumulative live birth rate. Now, for me, I've always believed, and I will continue to fight for, what I call um, time to pregnancy. And that is the best chance of a success in a single attempt, not the best chance of a success over a load of attempts following, um, you know, let's say a single egg transfer, um, a single egg collection. And, and there's there's a whole misnomer out there or, or a misrepresentation of, of results on that basis. And if you do want your three children that you've been talking about, or if you want your two children, well, clearly you need to have your first as soon as possible because age matters more than anything else, female age. And if you are, you know, not having an efficient IVF program and it takes you two or three years, you had a miscarriage along the way or you just haven't got pregnant, and two, but then you finally have your baby, then those IVF practitioners that feel it's great, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a success, have forgotten that that person is now two or three years older with maybe a 20% lower chance now than they had in the first place because she's older, of having that second child. And so it goes on. Mm. So I think that's another very important area. Well, there's so many more questions that I have for you, but I'm going to I'm gonna bring it to a close with one thing that I just want to ask you about, because we, we touched on secondary infertility, and I know that you have the Rachel Foundation, which is your charity, and you do all sorts of research into infertility and fertility preservation, and you also are doing research into secondary infertility. Um, and it's something that I've been covering a little bit on this podcast because it's kind of where we're at I suppose at the moment with with number two and I'm interested in whether you feel that that's understood enough not at all no not at all it isn't Uh, and I don't think it's really fully acknowledged and appreciated by funders of IVF or practitioners of IVF for many yes it's it's fantastic if we can help them uh, achieve achieve their baby but actually a lot of them are thinking about achieving a family Mm. And, 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 you know, we, we have to wrap it up in that. We have to try to understand that. And for patients themselves or potential patients, n- nobody actually really understands, and uh, especially maybe if you're just seeking a GP's advice at the very sort of basic level, if they've had a baby, why shouldn't they have the second? They're fertile. Or for those who actually go through IVF and succeed, it doesn't mean it's going to be very easy the next time. There are so many inefficiencies built into the reproductive process between a couple who are trying to conceive that you may hit the bullseye very easily once, but they may not do it again. Or vice versa, we hear the opposite, don't we, where they struggle and struggle. And then as soon as they've had the first, getting the second and third is is not an issue. Mm. That's fine for them. But the alternative one, the secondary infertility, which by definition is I've had a child, but I can't have a second one. That's so underlooked and, and, and undercared for. And I think it's, it's something, again, that we need, we need to do a lot about. And just finally, if you could give one key bit of advice to somebody listening, be it someone on their own or in a couple, male or female, is there one thing about this whole world being, you know, dealing with infertility that you would say? I used to say, and I, and I wish it still applied, um, that actually the best thing you could get is what you believe to be, and you have to find the best person to give you this, the best advice as early as possible 
so you can be fast-tracked. And even if the fast-track is a simple procedure, it doesn't have to be expensive, but whatever it is, you need the best advice to get to fast-track you to success as soon as possible. Because, well, we know, for example, a woman's chance of a live birth decreases 9 to 10% every year after 35. So age matters, the best advice matters, the fast-track matters. And, and and it's not easy to get it from Dr. Google, and it's not easy to get it, I know. I fully understand that. But you have to find somebody who you believe can give you the advice that matters. And then persevere and also try to do it in a way that, and it's very, very easy for me to say this, but it, it does matter, that, that it, it can you can almost carry on with your life with a minimum of stress while you're going through the program. It's a roller coaster. It's not easy to say, but you need to find your own strategy to deal with that. It's very important. Yeah, I've, I've recently done an episode on the, the mental health implications, which um, I'll put the details in this because I try to also stress to, to not feel you have to deal with it alone. In fact, don't deal with it alone if possible. Absolutely. Simon, it's been fascinating chatting to you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to put all the links to care and happy 20th and, and here's to another 20 and, and, and more care babies every four hours. Oh, thank you very much. Thank all you. Right. Take thank care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The Fertility Podcast is supported by Ovusense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, Ovusense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class two medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and fits like a tampon, so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. Now you use it at night while you sleep and then in the morning, you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now Ovusense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovisense.com. Now, if you have any questions about the discussion I just had with Simon Fischel, why not join the new closed Facebook group that I've created for the Fertility Podcast? If you have a look on Facebook and put in Talk Fertility, or just go to the show notes for this episode, which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Simon, the details are there. The aim of it is to continue the conversation, really, with you. So if there's things that you've heard me talk about in a podcast that have raised questions, or if there's questions you have regarding where you're at on your journey that I can help with, I'm also going to be inviting uh, my fertility friends to the group, as well as asking experts that I'm speaking to about the the issues that are raised in the group. So my aim of it is to give you even more value from the content that you're going to be hearing in the podcast. Hopefully I can have that two-way discussion uh, ongoing. Now I did mention at the start of this podcast about going over to iTunes and uh, subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. The link will be on the show notes too and I, I really am not comfortable asking but your support is so essential really to carry on with this podcast and it's a brand new year and I've got so many ideas and so many exciting things potentially going to happen but it all rests on the popularity of this podcast so please do support me if you can. It'll only take you like a couple of minutes. I hope you found this podcast episode of interest. If it's the first time that you've listened, welcome. Do have a listen to all the various episodes. There's over 100 now, uh, which you can see at thefertilitypodcast.com. There's a search box on the top right-hand side of the homepage. So if there's a certain subject that you're wanting to know more about, do a search. It should pop up if all my work and my tags has, has gone to plan. If not... 
If there's something missing that you want to know more about, email me, natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. You can follow me online at Fertility Poddy on Twitter and Instagram. And the Facebook page is The Fertility Podcast, along with that closed group that I mentioned. Details are in the show notes. Far too much for you to remember for now, I'm sure. But thank you for listening. And until the next time, 